Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Natural Running Network. We are brought to you by MedHab, makers of RPM Squared, an innovative system of gait analysis that slips right into your running shoes. My name is Richard Diaz. I am your host. Are you a runner? Do you love to get out and challenge yourself? Running your first marathon or maybe caught the bug of obstacle racing? Well, sit tight because this is a show you just don't want to miss. I'm very pleased to bring to you guys today another Q&A session. It seems that this is becoming a very, very popular thing with us, and uh, i got to tell you, I love it. And I asked my good friend Yancey Culp to come along and, and help us out here. He is clearly one of the top OCR coaches in the world today, good friend, tremendous following, and, of course, my, my posse. Or my, my, it's not really a posse if it's one person, right? That's a plural thing, right? I think so. Yeah. You're like think, five people. I'll, <laughs> I, I'll just stick to Bird Dog Supreme, you know. I mean, that, that Supreme works. Bird Dog, Miguel Medina, exactly. elite OCR athlete extraordinaire. I like that too. You got to get that all in there. All right, we got to we got to put that on a business card. So between the three of us, we're going to try to field these questions. And folks, I got to tell you, we got a lot of them. We got a lot of questions. If we don't get to them. And we see that a lot of people love this. We're going to try to do it again. And the good news is this time around, we're actually going to be giving away some cool stuff because we love you guys. And what the heck, if we can get away with it, we can pull it off. We're happy to do it. And again, my dear friend Yancey was able to kick in. Yancey, tell them some of the stuff that you're planning on giving up today. Well, first off, thanks for the introduction, uh, Richard. Good, good to hear from you as well, Miguel. Uh, Hope that ankle is doing well. And, uh, and yeah, so some of our affiliates over at YanceyCamp.com uh, where uh, Beat Elite is, uh, is giving three free canisters out today to some of you awesome people that posted some questions. And we're also going to give uh, three free uh, month memberships to, uh, to YanceyCamp.com so you can go on and uh, pick out an athlete to, to, to kind of see behind the scenes and how they're training. I'm not saying you have to sign up for Miguel, but I, I can promise you that you would uh, enjoy his program. He takes he takes real good care of all of his clients that, that sign up for his plan. So yeah, that's uh, that, that's the three canisters and the three month of memberships. And I know you have some great things to offer as as well, Richard. Well, yeah. So obviously enough, uh, those that are listening to me have heard me rant enough times about the fact that we are going to be making our way to Killington, Vermont, for another one of our uh, OCR clinics, and that's going to happen in October. And I thought, what the heck, let's give entry to day two of that, that setup, where, in essence, if you get picked the second day, which is the fundamentals, where we're going to do the video analysis, we're going to do the training, we're going to get up on the mountain, all that stuff is going to be yours for the taking. And we're going to also offer that up in Texas, where we'll be in Dallas, Texas, in November. So same deal, second day is on us. 
Of course, first day is where we're going to do all the testing. If you want to do that, we're going to have to have you pay for that because it's very, very limited in supply. We can only take 10 people max. Incidentally, those of you guys that are listening, if you haven't already thought about it, if you want to do the testing, you better jump because it only we got 10 people we can do. After that, it's over. It just takes too long to do the testing in one day. And then it occurred to me that since we are incapable of being everywhere and I want everybody to have a fair shot, we're also going to offer up a free clinic here in California if you want to show up for one of my local clinics. Those are always a hoop. had a great one last weekend. So uh, free stuff. And by the way, you're looking at about $150 value for that, incidentally. So, gentlemen, with no further ado, I would love if we could kick off by answering the first question. And if I could have my dear friend Yancey handle this because the question was really directed towards the both of us, but more primarily towards you, I think. And so a gentleman by the name of Chris Polito, here's the question. He says, gentlemen, could you talk about combining Richard's training and Yancey's training into a weekly plan? Mainly for those of us who are working with you both, I'm also signed up for my first Ultra Beast in Jersey next April, so I figured Miguel could add additional training tips for long distance while still utilizing Yancey Camp as well as Diaz format. So I guess it's really going to be directed towards both you guys. So Yancey, why don't you kick it off? Hey, Chris, first off, thanks for the question, buddy. Really appreciate it. And uh, so I'm, I'm going to paint a couple scenarios where how I've seen uh, people out there meshing with both of our programs. So if you're, let's say you're partnering with Miguel, com, every week you see three very OCR-specific workouts. Uh, and some weeks, maybe one or two bonus sessions that I'll, that I'll throw in there as fillers. So... Let's say you're partnering with Miguel and you've got your Yancey Camp uh, workouts and you, you decide to plug them in Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. And then I'll paint some pictures of different ways you might be teamed with Richard. So first off, his, his clinics. Let's say you go to his clinics. Uh, the reason why I'm a big fan of that is because every person that I know has been to one of his clinics is going to have a several great things going on there, less chance of uh, injury. Um, I'm naturally going to feel a little more comfortable with how, uh, when I communicate with them about their ability to, to tackle, you know, the, the entire workout versus scaling it down as long as they are, you know, their fitness is at a level that allows them to tackle all of Miguel's workout. Long story short, if they've spent some time working with Richard and Miguel and Nick and crew, at the clinics and possibly getting into into the lab, uh, they may not be training with you in this scenario. But I, I I feel I have a little more comfort level with knowing that again there's less injury risk, uh, so forth and so on. And that's a you know that's a that's a big uh, re- reassurance to me. I mean I I know it's impossible, but but you and I have talked about it before, Richard. If I could snap my fingers and say, hey, all 300 members of Yancey Camp could, could get to one of your clinics, for example or if they can work it in the budget to get into your lab, that puts, that puts all of my clients in a, for lack of better terms, into a different category of, you know, I'm not, I'm not able to, to be hands-on with them. You're getting some hands-on time with them. So it's a, it's a good mesh there. That's one scenario. The other scenario is, let's say you're working with Richard's program where he's actually programming some weekly workouts for you. Uh, for all my clients that, 
that are that are getting their three a week, um, you know that I always preach. You know, I I I prefer you if you're going to lean one way or the other, lean towards less is more versus going beast beast mode is more. But you're still there's still four days a week where you're not specifically training. So there's a couple days in there where plugging in specific running training, maybe that Richard has programmed for you, um, would, would mesh really well because what ends up happening is I will help people, motivated people will reach out to me and say, hey, what should we look at doing on some of the, you know, two to three days a week um, to kind of add as filler? And Miguel and I or, or Matt and I or Rose and I, whoever will work with them to help provide some filler so no matter how they're they're working with you if it's getting to one of your clinic it's clinics if it's getting to one of your clinics and getting out to the lab if it's or if it's all three really and truly um they'll all work well um i know richard is in agreement with me uh without putting words in his mouth that you know less can be more uh in most cases as far as uh you know I always tell people lean towards five days a week versus seven days a week. I know most people want to just go hard in the paint all the time, and and that can run run into risk. But um, I have seen people successfully be involved in both programs and and do well. Um, so no matter how you're you're partnering with Richard on on the three or four different things that he he has available, uh, it can it can definitely work uh, good for you, Chris. What do you think, Miguel? Um, Taking it long, going ask. ultra beast. Uh, I, well, I was actually going to ask before before we jumped into into going long and going for that UB. Um, Rich, is he is he doing programming with you, or yes. he's working with you? In, okay. Well, so I'd say as far as like, go ahead. Okay, I'm sorry. So um, just just kind of add my two cents to this. My typical mo, especially when I have clients that are working with Yancey, I try to stay out of Yancey's kitchen. And Yancey is the detail guy. He's looking at the obstacles. He's looking at grip strength. He's looking at navigating through all the work. And my work is really more specific to running skill and energy management. At the end of the day, when people work with me, that's what I do. And I have people day after day. As a matter of fact, just this morning, a new client from Seattle, Washington, sent me his videos. And at a distance, they'll send me videos where I get a chance to see how they're moving. And I will do some editing to the video, send them back, and then we have a conversation about what I see. And the first thing that I typically see is a lot of flaws in the way they move. And if they're moving poorly, they're subject to injure themselves. A lot of people that seek me out, the reason they do is because they are hurting themselves. And they're getting frustrated, and they want to get, get past that so they can get on to you know, crushing these races. We're very complimentary, I think. Uh, and again, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think that um, when when people do work with us together, we try to find synergy. And I've had occasion where we'd have a client, we'd have to discuss it. What are we going to do with this person? Am I getting too deep into your business? Am I creating too much work for them? He might tell me, you know, why don't you throttle it back a little bit so I can fit this in. This is what I'm doing to her or, or him. And and so we, we definitely have a line of communication, and we try to work with each other. So for whatever it's worth, that's kind of how our interaction, I believe, comes about. Yeah, I, I, I agree with all that. All right, cool, yeah, because that's what I wanted to make sure beforehand, before before I gave my my, my two cents and a quarter. But um, And, and Miguel, Miguel I, I real think, quick, there's the only the, – just so there's no confusion with some of the people out there, the, 
you know, there there's a bunch of people that are a part of Yancey Camp, which is a that's not an all inclusive turnkey training program where like some of my clients, I have a, a handful of clients that I that I train full time and it's it's worked both ways. You know, there's there's multiple people that are on, on board the Yancey Camp that, that have, have worked with Richard and there's there's been people also that have that I'm training full time that have, have spent some time with Richard as, as well. So Yeah. I mean, if anything, I was just going to say it's a matter of finding a balance, you know, like obviously like with Rich, because I, because I work with you as well, I apply the data that I picked up from you from the RMR, the VO2, and then also my, my movement patterns as far as the way that I run and and try and adapt it into everything that I do in terms of my, my training with, with you, Yance. So I was going to just give that, that fine little piece of advice is, you know, like you said, less is more, don't overwork yourself because there's a higher likelihood of injury and of burnout, which we don't want especially if you plan on doing something like an ultra beast. So I'd say, you know, the number one thing for, for doing anything that's essentially an ultra marathon, uh, most ultra beasts have tended to be above 30 miles at this point, And there's been some serious climbing, like, especially at Montreal, I think we climbed, uh, over, over 14,000 feet. We climbed 14,700 feet. And so I'm going to say number one recommendation, climb, climb however you can. If you live in a place that is flat, then get on a Stairmaster as much as you can. I mean, I, I think that, that the Stairmaster and an incline trainer are your best friend and just putting in time on those day in, day out, you know, not necessarily killing yourself on them, but definitely just, even if it's just like for your necessity work, so to speak, like we've been working on a lot with Yancey Camp, um, yep. just doing that on the incline will, will help prep your legs and build your legs to be able to climb. And then on top of that, don't neglect your your posterior chain, you know, um, a lot of times you'll hear people complaining when they do these races about having lower back pain from climbing so much. So we really got to make sure to, to be working on that as well, you know, and we can do that obviously through deadlifts. We can do that through, through exercises like GHDs. We can do that through, through some of the hip circle work. We can do that through, um, you know, playing around with a kettlebell and doing a lot of stability work, which is really important, especially over those longer distances, because as fatigue sets in, the likelihood of you getting injured increases significantly. And, and that's, and that's kind of the number one thing that'll, that'll boot someone out or that'll make someone, you know, DNF uh, an ultra beast is, is injury is not making those cutoffs. And then lastly, the nutrition component. So making sure when you're training, when you're prepping for this race to practice your nutrition ahead of time. Um, you know, uh, calories in, calories out makes a big difference and making sure that you're, that you're drinking water and, and, you know, so to speak, uh, you know, train like you race or race like you train and that you're, you're always thinking about that nutrition and having that in mind, because if you're not taking in enough calories, you're, you'll drop and that sucks. All right. Hey, Miguel, I, we, we can knock out one more question from John Hart super fast that ties in really well with what you just right. said. And he, he's, I'll just take a second here. Um, uh, a lot of times people will get themselves in the middle of an ultra beast and they haven't been doing a lot of actual climbing on the mountain or an incline treadmill and they're spending a lot more time in uh, what we call dorsiflexion where the, the posture chains to the calves and the Achilles and the foot fashion, everything is really getting lengthened over and over and over again. That's something that uh, working on your posture chain down, down that area and or uh, just getting out there and hitting the incline treadmill on the mountains more is going to help lengthen that stuff and, and keep you ready. Yeah, and hypothetically speaking, let's say that you that you're in like a bare bones gym. You don't have an incline trainer. You don't have a 
you don't have a stairmaster, you don't have any of that. Walking lunges and backwards bear crawls are your friends. You you just need to do a lot of those. Just mix that into everything. <laughs> Based on what we just discussed, something came up, comes up a lot, and I think this is something that I might be fairly capable of addressing. Gentleman right. by the name of Andrew Saunders. He's from the Dallas Fort Worth area, I believe. I'm not mistaken. So he it's a it's kind of a blanket question. He's saying how does periodization work? How can I use periodization to improve OCR? But anyway, so here it is. Let's talk about periodization. Periodization, for lack of a better term, is nothing really more than the organization of work over time. You're breaking your workloads into segments. So you have a meso, macro, micro. Micro being the smallest, macro being the largest, meso being the second largest. So if you looked at like a quarter of the year, all right, you're looking at four months. Each The, the four-month block would be the macro. And then each month would be a meso and a micro might be a week within the, each month. When you look at work and you segregate the work into those time blocks where OCR is concerned, I find that to be a very difficult thing. It's almost like we almost need to retool the concept of periodization training because periodization training has been used for the longest time in Olympic sport. That's kind of where it was born. And for the most part, the godfathers of periodization training were guys like Tudor Bumpa and the rest. What they would do is they might look at an athlete with a four-year block of time and the process in which to get them to peak competition. Where OCR, you know, being a coach and working with athletes myself that are in OCR, it seems every week there's another race. And it's really difficult to build the foundation of each of these different components of your needs when you got like a week to prepare Right. So, for example, look at this. One of the things that you need to have would be endurance. All right. Depending on the depth of the race, whether it be a 5K or whether it be a 30-mile ultra beast, there's a certain element of endurance that needs to be in play. And there's a certain amount of time that needs to be dedicated to developing that endurance. And then there's a function of mobility. How mobile are you? How well can you move? Is there any restrictions in the way you move? your grip strength, and generally your strength and your power. So these are all components of your training, and they are not synergistic. When you're trying to be powerful, that's going to detract from your endurance. When you're trying to be enduring, it's going to detract from your power. That's why there should be a progression over time in the development of your abilities to adapt to these different functionalities. You nailed that on the on the head, Richard, because we're still at a point in the sport where where uh, geography of the events change yearly, the links. Um, I just had a, 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 a big, you know, top-level athlete in Glenn. We were spending some time on preparing for Battle Frog World Championships. He just had a great race and finished right behind Atkins at Battle Frog Riverside. And then we're talking yesterday, and it's like, oh, wow, so I guess focus on Battle Frog World Championships is over. Yeah. <laughs> it's just such a, it's such a roller coaster ride right now, and something as simple as, a race venue where there's a lot more climbing or a real fast course with a lot of flat, you know, it, you're right. It's, there's so much black and white in Olympic sports, and we have a ton of gray still. Absolutely. So another way to look at it, and closer to this time and space, 
is I've worked with triathletes preparing for Ironman. We know what the challenge is. We know specifically what the distances are. We know specifically what the terrain's going to look like. We know that we have to contend with heat. We know that we have to be on that bike for 112 miles. We know we've got to swim for 2.4 miles. So when you have those fixed components, it's a lot easier to develop your training program around it. And it's also a lot easier because you're not going to be racing every damn week. You know, the difference with uh, every other sport is they don't race as often as OCR athletes do. I, I guess it, it, this is almost twofold because one of my clients that I work with, uh, Fabian Lindner, he, his question was, and I, I'm, I'm going to kind of dovetail these two together, he said, what would you recommend when it comes to post-race activity to promote quick and ideal recovery? What would apply to the Lake Tahoe Beast and then the following day, the Ultra Beast. So, in, in, in short, he's asking me, what would he do? do, do both? What would he do between these two things to recover? And he he also prefaced this thing by saying, I will not accept. Don't be stupid and do things like that, because he knows me, <laughs> and I don't like seeing my athletes do two efforts like this back to back. And my simple rationale for it is, I try not to train people just to show up. I try to train people to win. Now, some people might go into an event and they never have any intention of trying to win, but I do want them to do the very best that they can. And it's really tough to be the very best you can be two races in a row. This gets back to the concept of periodization. You can't periodize a training program that's going to be effective where you're going to be good, have A game two days in a row. One race is going to be A and one race is going to end up being B. And you may even mentally decide that the second race is going to be B or the first race is going to be B and the second race is going to be A. And so you already start to govern yourself relative to where you feel that you need to be in order to survive. Would you agree with that, you guys? Yes. Yeah, I, uh, there's a – there's a, I definitely do. There, there's, a, there's a balance right now. You have a lot of, you know – upper echelon athletes in a sport that are trying to walk that fine line of getting in as much racing as they can because of if it's working towards building a, a sponsorship program and ambassadors and this and that and they realize that you know it's 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 definitely a a, a challenge right now and you're you know you there's if, if you're looking at the, the five NBC races for example the big ones and then tahoe there's just absolutely no way, you know, you, you, you want your athletes, at least I, I like what that did. It, it gave us five. I looked at, I looked at the six races as five a races that you had to focus on because you, you got to run four of the first five to get your point standings. And obviously you have to be a Tahoe. So for an athlete that said, okay, those are my five a races. Then, you know, as well as at least gives us some concrete, things to look at we know where the races are the proximate links and we can work around that um and it, it is a bigger challenge and i it, the the gray area comes in of like people want some people are doing it for the memories some people are doing it to, they they're going to be there so they want to work race saturday and sunday but yeah you're 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 definitely right for for the athletes that, that that are really focused on doing their absolute best they have to be able to bend a little bit and, and kind of at least meet in the middle with uh, with their coach yeah. Well, to get more pointed towards the periodization component, 
If you look at the guys that are competing in the Tour de France, they have hard days back-to-back, -back, and they have to recover quickly back-to-back. -back. And they've got a team of people that are waiting for them to finish each stage every day to get to work on bringing these, these guys back to life. And so what are they doing? First thing, obviously enough, is they're going to cool them down, where they're going to hydrate them. They're going to bring their electrolyte levels back up. They're going to make sure they're fed. They're going to get some body work, and they're going to make sure that they get enough rest. But there is no hanging out at the bar between events. They're just, their whole focus in between these days is what can they do to get back in the game. So he's already kind of touched on it. You need to recover, which means you have to rest. You're going to need to make sure that you bring your nutrition in play. You make sure you're feeding properly. You make sure that if you have any hot spots in your body that need to be addressed, maybe you get somebody to help you with some body work, especially if you're serious about it. Maybe, maybe even some self-myofascial release. Uh, maybe some icing. Certainly taking care of your feet because you're probably taking a beating on your feet. Ask Miguel about that. He knows. But, um, again, so he knows me well enough to know that I'm not really a fan of my athletes trying to focus on doing two big events like that back-to-back. -back. I'd just, I just rather see him podium at one event than being also ran at two. That would be my advice to pretty much anybody, middle-of-the-pack guys, whomever. Focus on an event, nail it, and then move on. But, of course, that's I'm me talking. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, obviously Fabian um, and a lot of other people who, who run around in this sport, uh, they, they're all about the two-a-days, you know, even if it's not necessarily, like, like Yance is saying, it's, it's the memories, it's the fact that you're all the way out there, it's whatever, you know, okay, fine, you've committed, you're doing two of your days, you might as well make the, me the most out of it if you're going to do two days. Choose which one of them is going to be your A race, choose which one of them is going to be your B race, and the time between those races is 100% dedicated to recovery. So, Kind of to mirror what you were saying, make sure to ice that, make sure to do some myofascial release, make sure to, you know, just just not, for one, like not really stand still for too long and not, not just like go and lay down and eat a bunch of chips afterwards. Like make sure to work on your body and take care of yourself after that, especially those hot spots. Make sure that, that your feet are good. Just kind of do a head-to-toe check from there and figure out, all right, what do I need to do to recover quickly? So, number one, I mean, you can go kind of the quote-unquote holistic route. I think it's really important to be taking in stuff like turmeric, to be taking in your fish oil, to be taking in, you know, your, 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 your anti-inflammatory promoting foods or foods that are high in antioxidants. You know, obviously, um, depending on, on what your leanings are as far as your, your diet goes, like some, some foods are shown to be promoters of inflammation, some are shown to be anti-inflammatory in their nature, so take that into consideration as well as far as what you're taking in between those two days. Drinking a bunch of beer and having a burger after your race and then going out to do your Ultra Beast the next day and, and make that your A race or be really competitive, not the smartest choice. Probably better to stick to foods that are, you know, really nutritious, the things that will absorb and digest easily, and then from there making sure that you're, that you're taking care of yourself, you know, and that you get adequate rest. That would be my tip to you, Fabian. Let, let me offer you this. I can recall back in the early 80s when the race across America was going on. And a, a gentleman by the name of John Howard, who was a Pan-American uh, medal winner in cycling, went against a guy by the name of Lon Haldeman, who was the, the record holder for crossing the United States on a bicycle. They got a team of guys together to control the feeding 
of John Howard because he was going to be the guy. He was the favorite. He's going to go and crush this guy because he had all this cycling experience and racing experience. So they were being very scientific about the way they fed him and the whole thing. I mean, just, just really down to the, the appropriate calories coming in and trying to give him stuff that was really well digested and the whole thing. Lon Haldeman had his crew stop off at McDonald's and get him a Big Mac, fries, and a chocolate shake whenever he got hungry. And he crushed John Howard. John Howard ended up stopping off somewhere in the mountains of Colorado, hallucinating, had boils on his butt, was basically destroyed. So it really comes down to the individual, what really works for you. But I promise you one thing for sure. The biggest thing that you need to do is make sure you replace the carbohydrate stores that you depleted and make sure you've taken in adequate and quality enough protein to help with some of the repair. When you're talking about a 24-hour window before events, less than a 24-hour window between events, you really can't do much other than to make sure that you replenish your glycogen stores. So that would be the key. Hydration, put back the sugar, get back to racing. And don't forget those chicken nuggets while you're at chicken it. Chicken nuggets chicken. are huge. <laughs> no, I, I definitely agree. Like, you know, it varies from athlete to, from individual to individual. But but um, personally, I mean, if, if there's science to back it, if there's facts to back it, then I'll, I'll go with the stuff that, that is. I mean, we're not all superhumans that can eat Big Macs and, <laughs> and chocolate shakes and hope to perform at our best the next day. But... If that's what works for you, then great. My, my wife's a sports performance dietitian for the University of Texas Longhorns Athletic Department and working with the trainers, and, and there are some basic things. The number one thing you know, Richard, is replacing your glycogen stores. She'll have her athletes drink tart cherry juice. It's probably the number one anti-inflammatory out there as far as just bang for your buck. It's got to be tart cherry juice, not cherry juice. Um, I personally use uh, we obviously recommend foam rolling. I use the Hyper Ice vibrating foam roller just because it seems to be so much more effective. Good rest. You've got to replace the glycogen stores. Healthy choices are great, but no matter what, if you don't get those uh, replenished, you're going to be dead in the water because that's the body's number one source. That's what it likes to burn. And get a good night's sleep. And just, you know, you're, you're going to at least improve your statistics a little bit if you follow all those basic things, buddy. Fabian. Yep. Um, let me just, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to impart this information, and you guys could do whatever you want with it. Stay away from fads. Stay away from crazy, fangled ideas that come down the pipe that promise to be the, the new big thing that's going to save your life. I've been around a long time, and it always come back around to the, the primary concerns. Are you getting enough carbohydrate in your system? Are you getting a quality protein in your system? Are you getting adequate fats in your diet? And are you getting enough calories? And how do you take those calories and win? Do not get in your mind that fasting will save you or fasting is going to prepare you to burn fat more efficiently. Fasting is going to cause you to go into gluconeogenesis, which is going to cause you to start wasting muscle. It's also going to start retarding your metabolism. Don't mess around with your diet, especially when you're in A-game race season. Stick to good, solid nutritional processes. It will never let you down. If it did, we'd all have changed to some kind of supplement form of living long ago. It just doesn't work. If it did, 
I'd be banging the drum all day long because it's what I do. Okay, this is a good one for you guys. And I this is something I'm not comfortable trying to answer, so I'll shut up. Dave Dumichel, actually one of my clients, he says, I'll be running Tahoe Ultra Beast, and I feel the biggest obstacle will be swimming the cold lake. In your opinion, what would be the optimal gear to wear for tackling the distance and cold water? All right. Well, I'll 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 jump in first, just real quick, and then I'll let Yancy Yancy tag team it. Um, I'll say, as far as as the cold water is concerned, you got to practice. You got to find some nice cold water. Uh, I know that can be difficult depending on where you're living, but a nice cold lake, and you just got to get in and out of that water a lot over the course of a couple of hours to get yourself used to it. Um, on top of that, this is something that we used to do before any race that we knew we would run into cold water at. Um, about two days before, we would get, we would go to like a, a freshwater stream or something like that and actually just go sit in it for about 15 minutes and then pop out and start doing squats and stuff like that and just to kind of get used to it. And then the next day, it's like it was, it didn't even phase us, you know, to swim through that water and have to climb up a rope and do a Tarzan swing and tap a bell was like, was, was not a problem. The cold water wasn't an issue. So I'd say practice is a big one. And it also kind of helps you get on your game mentally. You know, that half, half of the issue with the water is just like, Oh gosh, it's so cold. And then really you're like, well, at the end of the day, this isn't so bad, you know, and, and it can even help to cool you down. Another thing is when you're actually doing the swim, like in Tahoe is making sure to get that full extension when you're moving through the water with everything, you know, don't, don't make quick brisk movements because that'll just freak your body out. And I heard a ton of people cramping because of that. When I was going through that water, I was like treating it like a, like a relaxing swim for me, you know, and I just went through it nice and slow. Yancey saw it. I would come out of the water and I would just jog it out real slow until my body felt warm enough again to pick up the speed. So that would be, that would be one. If you don't have access to cold water, fill up a bucket of trash, like a big old trash bucket, uh, and put a plastic bag in it, put some ice water in there, and you can practice jumping in and out of that. <laughs> yeah, Miguel knows. <laughs> hey, a couple, yeah, you know the drill. A couple key, and what I'm going to tell, whoever asked the question, this what I'm going to say here is not debatable, buddy. Just listen to me here on this one. Miguel nailed it. Getting in the cold is going to help you. It's going to help you mentally as much or more than physically. Spend some time in cold water. There's a couple things I can tell you that are not debatable. When you get out of that water, you got to freaking move. If you've been averaging 15-minute mile pace up to that point, you better crank it down to 11- or 12-minute mile pace for the next half mile. Get yourself moving. Don't sit down and feel sorry for yourself. The second and third things you can do at that type of distance, you know, that type of duration, almost everybody, including the leads, are going to be wearing some type of pouch, camelback or something. Throw in a $5 windbreaker. The moment you get out, throw that windbreaker on, zip it up, and that's going to dramatically increase your, your, your body heat. It doesn't matter if the windbreaker is completely soaked. Um, and you can also, if you really struggle with it, you can throw on a swim cap, and that will trap some of your, the, the heat that you release from your head. Those three things. Get your butt out of the water. Move. Move fast as fast as you can. Uh, windbreaker and throw on the uh, swim cap if you want to. That will all help dramatically. You get down and you feel sorry for yourself, and you sit down, cash it in, game over. So i got a question. Would it not be a good idea if you knew you're getting ready to jump in the water to put that swim cap on beforehand? Yeah, great, great idea. If you, if you definitely, especially if you're somebody that struggles with it, throw that swim cap on, um, and you're just going to release a lot less. Uh, that's where you're going to really lose most of your heat anyway. So yeah, absolutely. 
John Yasko ran the entire 2014 uh, World Championships with a swim cap on the whole time. Smart idea. You know, I'm not going to. I'm going to go on a rant, and I know we don't have a lot of time, and we got about 50 other questions. But I, I think it's appropriate to share this story. Back in the day, I think it was 1986. I was up at uh, Bass Lake, and those that don't live on the West Coast won't know where I'm talking about. But Bass Lake, uh, it was called the Coors Classic Championships. It was a triathlon, and we had a swim in the lake. And I came from Hawaii, so I never even owned a wetsuit. I got to the water's edge that morning. It was a mile and a half swim. I got to the water's edge that morning, and everybody there looked like Diver Dan was going to try to recover something from the uh, the Titanic with booties on, the whole thing. It was snowing, and I was in a Speedo. <laughs> All right? Now, I know that's tough to try to swallow me in a Speedo, but I used to rock that sucker pretty well back in the day. And I got in that water, and it was, oh, I don't know, it must have been about 40 degrees. And it took me every bit of that bike ride to finally try to get my legs warmed up again. So I think the advice that you offered about get moving quickly right away is really smart. And I think that the idea of putting on that swim cap beforehand is probably even a smarter idea than than a lot. So, yes. That that swim cap saved me. Thanks for... Thanks for letting me talk about my speedo, guys. No worries. Look, we, we've all seen the pictures from the eighties. You, right, th- you threw up in your mouth a little bit just a little while ago, didn't you? That bitch and mustache. That's why I had to disconnect. No, but but um, I I was gonna that swim cap was was like a godsend. I was so glad that I packed that thing away, especially because like you know the long hair don't care and what have you. So it uh it it helped keep keep me insulated and warm and. You know, the only thing I kind of had to worry about the rest of the race was keeping my hands warm. Um, which, on the subject, if you are having numb hands and it's before something important like a rope climb, and like at Tahoe last year, we had a barbed wire crawl with that with that dip, that uh, that little dip in the in the pool or whatever right before, and then more barbed wire crawling. When you're doing that roll, you can just bring your hands up to your to your face and just breathe hot air into them and kind of rub them together and just keep moving them. And it'll help keep your hands warm enough so that when you hit that rope, you'll be able to make it up. And obviously you have good form on it. Just a side note. Anyways. Let's get some more of these questions. I, I apologize for eating clock. I said clock. Yeah. Uh, all right. No, I heard you. <laughs> all right. So there, this is an interesting question. And I, I'm just going to toss it out there to see what you guys think. Aaron Brabson. Didn't say where he's from. Oh, yeah, he's from Fort Worth, Fort Worth, Texas. Cool. I love this, too. He said, long-time listener, first-time commenter. He says, uh, I got flat feet, so running in elevation, do I have more of an advantage or a disadvantage when running up or downhill? Any thoughts on that, guys? I don't know. I have flat feet, and I've never, that's, I've never even considered that. He's one of my full-time clients, and I, I just found out something new about Aaron that he has flat feet. <laughs> well, um, go ahead, Rich. Okay, so I have people that come to me for gate work, and every now and then I'll get someone that comes to me that has exceedingly flat feet. And they think that trying to run the way I teach them may be a bit of an issue for them because they don't have an, an arch. So what really constitutes this arch is the plantar fascia and the structure of the bottom of your foot. And the stronger that you develop your feet, 
the more capable you are regardless. I find that I'm able to get flat-footed runners able to run just as effectively as people with an arch. As a matter of fact, I'd like to believe that one of the fastest runners in the world, um, he's retired now, Haley Gaber Selassie, I think he was flat-footed and he was running like a 204 marathon. And he ran off his midfoot. So um, I don't think, A, that being flat-footed is really a deterrent to performance. Now, I certainly don't think that there's an advantage or even a disadvantage on upper downhill running. Um, what the disadvantage would be is weak feet and poor connection up through, the, you guys were using this term posterior chain, but the plantar fascia up through the Achilles into the calf. Um, if you're weak through that, that posterior chain, you're subject to have issues, weakness. Um, so regardless whether you're flat-footed or whether you have a decent arch, I think it's really important that you take care of the bottom of your feet and work that plantar fascia. Get barefoot a lot. Spend some time working on your, your uh, let's call it your grip strength with your toes. Um, and I guess the more appropriate term would, would be referred to as Yonda short foot exercise. If you Google Yonda, spelled J-A-N-D-A, you'll learn a really decent exercise for developing that plantar fascia strength. Very good. I'm going to Google that after this. Yep, you should. Of all people, you should. Because you have issues with your ankle, that's the reason I said that. I do. Well, thank you. All uh, right. Let's see what else we got here. You guys got something interesting? Um, this one's kind of interesting. It's from one of the Guzman twins. I I didn't look at. They're they're based out of SoCal. I I should have looked at which one I asked. I'm sorry, ladies. Uh, I throat closes up when going uphill. Like whenever she's climbing, just her throat starts to close up, and she has a really hard time breathing. What What do you guys know about that? I've never. That's that's a new one for me. Really hard. The good news is really hard time breathing going uphill. You're in a very, very good company. That was that was kind of a joke, but yeah, you're you're in very good company. <laughs> Let's look at that for a second. What what would cause your throat to start to close down? If and you're, it close up, it, it closes up, and she starts to dry heave. Sorry, I didn't finish reading that. So oh, and, and start to dry heave, and I have to stop and catch my, my breath. Mm. Dry heave. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the few times that I've experienced something like that is when I my mouth has gotten extremely dry to the point where you guys have probably experienced it a couple times racing as much as you guys have raced. It's just your just everything lined up wrong, and you just you were left with this mouth that was so dry. You, you, your tongue was sticking to the roof of your mouth. It was just a mess. I've I've been there a few times. I don't doesn't sound like it's the same issue, but I've I've darn sure been there before. Well, I'm I'm a little concerned about the dry the dry heave. What I think uh, would cause this restriction in her ability to breathe or get air is having just not breathing properly leading up to the hill or commonly having a good breathing pattern while she's running. And there are techniques in breathing pattern, but typically when you get stressed like that, your autonomic system takes over and it starts to force you to find air as best you can, whether it be through your nose, your mouth, or whatever. I'm wondering whether when she runs uphill, does she cock her head back? If you tend to cock your head back, 
you can potentially cause a close down your windpipe. In the course of doing that, maybe just a little bit of uh, anxiety may cause her to actually get into this dry heave. I, I'm really not sure. I'm just kind of fetching right now. But if you just sit there and cock your head back and, and you're stressing your body, you find that you, you're having a little trouble breathing. I don't know. I mean, it's a it's a really tricky question. Glad it's not me. That's a good question. That's got to that's got to count for something, doesn't it? That's a good one. That's yeah, a I, think, I think that one. I think I think we should we should definitely try and revisit. I'm going to follow up with her because she's one of my clients. Um, I'm going to look uh, into it too. I'm going to look into it just because yeah. I'm curious what what might cause something like that. What All else right. do we have, fellas? Uh, We've got. Um, I have a bunch from the from the world's toughest mutter community. If we want to get into a couple of those, um, I thought they were. Yeah, man. Bad questions, considering considering world's toughest is only uh what like eleven weeks away or something like that. Uh, let's see. If if you guys are cool with it, I I think this one this one was good. Um, it was from Carlo Piscatello. He was saying, "As Hocus continue to make their shoes narrower, so we got a shoe question." I'm being forced to switch to a wider shoe like an ultra. I'm hearing that going from a hoka to a zero drop can be tough on your Achilles. Is this true? And number two, what's the best way to transition? And he's from Windsor, California. You want me to play with that? Yeah, I think I think you're that that question is all you, man. I mean All right, well look, first of all, a narrower platform for your foot can be a problem. But it has nothing to do with the drop. What a lot of people might not know is that Hoka's are zero drop. The difference is the stack height. They're just further off the ground than the other shoes. And they traditionally try to make a broader toe box. That's definitely the namesake of Ultra. I think that, first of all, um, you know me, I'm not a fan of Hoka's. I'm not a fan of a shoe with a real big stack height. I like people to get a little closer to the earth and make better decisions about what's happening with their feet while they're running. It's kind of a $50,000 question in respect to whether or not he's going to be concerned about it going away from or going to being zero drop versus not being zero drop. It's it's a moot question because both the shoes are zero drop. I thought most of their shoes were four to five mil. I know some of them are four to five mil. I didn't realize there were some that were were zero also. Well, the majority of them are, and again, I don't follow the brand because I don't like the brand. They mm-hmm. may they may have created a shoe with a little bit more stack height than I've than I've given them credit for, but I know the concept from the beginning was to be zero drop with more stack height, and they want to create cushion beneath the shoe. That's what they that's mm-hmm. their whole namesake. And then right. where Ultra came along um, early before even Hoka. It's always been zero drop, and now they've chased the stack height, and now they're they're starting to fade back. So it, it just seems like a lot of confusion. At the end of the day, I've said it a million times. If I said it once, your shoes aren't the ticket. You're not going to save yourself by causing a greater stack height beneath your shoe, or even reducing the uh, the lift beneath your heel. Uh, I don't like a heel, but I don't like um, really bizarre transitions from a real heavy heel to no heel. You're just asking for trouble. And while I'm on that subject, I know people that are going between a zero drop minimal shoe and then when they're training, they have a really big 
cushy stack height kind of a shoe. That's a really bad idea. You want to you want to figure out what you're going to do and stick with it one way or the other. Agreed, 100. percent All right, so uh, let me. There's a couple of good ones that I had here, and I'm sure you guys do too. Oh, let's go with the hair thing. What's the right. question? Inquiring minds want to know, as far as your hair, how, why is Yancey's hair game always on fleek? Any specific product that he uses. That's from Keith Allen, by the way. Another, another. That's Hello, world. Matter. Um, Give us well, man. Is it Pantene? Keith, it's a very refined art. Um, <laughs> there's there's times when it's a little long. There's times when it's short. You're, you, Keith, you've seen me many different. You've seen me where it's really long. It's really short. There's you you either when you have wild crazy hair like mine, you either have to keep product in it or it is going to completely throw out and be about three foot tall on my head, or you do what a lot of people do is you just don't. We have real curly hair, Keith. It's, the natural oils have a lot harder time getting to the end of your hair, your, your, your hair, so you, you just don't wash your hair as much. So there could be times, Keith, when if you get nice and close to me, I might smell a little... Uh, Patchouli-esque, hippie-esque, whatever you want to say. So I just, I don't, I just don't quite wash my hair as much as you might, Keith. And I do have several key products that uh, I'll shoot you a message, Keith. I'll let you know what product you can use for that blonde hair, of yours, buddy. That's TMI, buddy. <laughs> secret, Yancy secret. All right, let's try blood. to do a training question. What do you think? All right. Um, yes. I got two. Let's let's deal with two. I think this one's probably a good one for Yancey. Jason Ware, outside of running and grip strength endurance, Yancey's favorite, that's in quote, what else should a well-rounded OCR journeyman strive for in training? Mental fortitude, lifting heavy stuff, more running. I, when I first started getting into training, I tried to, kind of do what I think most coaches do, you you know, it's like what the, and of course OCR threw, as Richard said earlier, twice as many curveballs as any other sport has ever thrown at any coach. So we're still getting a grasp on everything, but you've got to lay down the four or five things that are absolute musts. And the absolute musts for me are running, climbing, Carrying heavy shit, grip strength, or grip and pull strength, and grip and pull strength endurance. Those things are absolute must. You, um, Spartan has, they're not dropping off, the, they're not tapering down from the grip and pull strength intensity obstacles, they're actually ramping up. We've seen that with a lot of guys and girls having trouble. They're, they're, I think I give Battlefog a lot of credit for that. Um, the obstacles are just a little more challenging. Uh, the carry, the carries have gotten tougher. The double sandbag carries are absolutely brutal. Um, you've got to have a broad range of running ability. You know, one one weekend the NBC course is nice and flat, and the guys are knocking out five twenty mile paces over the course of six seven miles back to back, and then the next race they're you know they're five to six minutes slower on the same distance. Um, so those are the, 
those are kind of the basics, kind of the, the bread and butter, the, the staples of life when I'm programming that, I, that I'll always look towards that we've got. And then, you know, nothing comes before running, of course. But um, so that's kind, of my, that's kind of my foundation, Jason. There you go. Go run a lot. Go run a lot. And run well. Run, run well. You know, it's funny. You, everybody, you, you say that, but if you look at, if, if, you, if you can improve your running and just improve your grip and pull strength and grip and pull strength endurance, those two things are going to provide immediate results because, as all of us know, 95% of the people out there, their number one goal is to run their first burpee-free race. And that's going to – so if you're looking at that group of clientele, you're automatically leaning towards, okay, grip and pull strength and grip and pull strength endurance is your number one focus other than the spear throw. So – but then we have – you know, and then – so that's nine of our clients. And then this one client over here is breaking into that elite world. They've done six races in a row. They haven't failed any obstacles. That person's – our focus with that person is going to be a little different. So, you know – there's um, so kind of when I'm writing the Yancey Camp workout, for example, I'll I'll put a little bit of a blend to where you can cater to both of those people with the how you word the the workout because but I don't think it'll ever change unless it becomes the Olympic sport and 99 percent of people go from running to actually sitting in the stands and watching until that happens. 95 percent of the people we talk to are going to be people that would tell you. I would love to run my first burpee-free race. Or in the old battle frog world, I would love to keep my band. Or if you're looking at Conquer the Gauntlet or Savage or other mandatory obstacle completions, you know. So different people have different goals. And, and knowing Jason well, he's, he's doing really well across the board and is just continuing to approve a little bit by a little bit on all five of those, those categories. Hmm. So there's a bunch of questions in here that I've been kind of staving away from to give you guys a chance to play with uh, with all the things that I don't work in. And they are, are a lot of them revolving around cadence and heart rate. And I think that this is really a difficult question to kind of contend with, but it tends to be all-encompassing. First of all, um, there's a gentleman by the name of Alvin Wong, And here's what he said. He goes, I hear Richard constantly stressing the importance of 180 steps per minute. Does this ideal cadence also apply to uphill and downhill running? All right. Now, before I answer that, I want to take a look at another one. A fellow by the name of Will Raymond. He said, he started following the show a few months ago. I noticed even at 180, a slower pace means my feet are on the ground longer than I'd like. When running slow, such as at a recommended MAF aerobic pace, where my heart rate is limited to around 140 beats per minute, should my cadence be even higher than 180 steps per minute? Because as mentioned, it seems like I've been putting undue impact on my feet. When I'm running faster and I'm opening up my stride, 180 steps per minute seems more comfortable. So I get a lot of questions about this whole cadence thing. And what I find is that it, first of all, becomes um, very confusing on paper, very confusing in conversation. Uh, 
because I'll get people, they'll get a metronome, and they'll try to run at 180 strides per minute, and either they can't do it, or it seems very, very cumbersome if they do. So they actually shorten up their stride to a point where they can't even move properly. Or they just can't, you know, they'll come try to negotiate with me about, hey, I'm at 170, will that do? Well, here's the thing. It's been scientifically validated that about 180 strides per minute is going to draw your stride length nearer your center of mass. And the common overstriding runner, heel striking or toe diving runner that overstrides, runs at about 160 strides per minute. The closer your foot comes to your center of mass, the quicker you're capable of getting the foot off the ground, and you're also going to eliminate a lot of that hang time, that, that vertical oscillation, that bouncing up and down. So the closer your body, your, excuse me, the closer your foot comes to beneath your body, the more stable you are on ground contact. And what that's going to do is it's going to help to eliminate a lot of the garden variety uh, injuries that people are facing. So I keep seeing these questions that are asking about, what do you do when your IT band starts to bother you? How come I can't get this or that going on? It isn't just about getting to 180 strides per minute. It's about the way you get to 180 strides per minute and how your stride opens up behind you. It's a function. Speed is a function of force production. It's not a function of frequency of cadence. If you turn your legs over faster than 180, it becomes more expensive, meaning that your heart rate's going to go way, way up. And if your heart rate goes up, so does the lactic acid buildup in your muscles, and the work becomes unsustainable. Regardless of whether you're running out of gas, you still will find that you'll get shut down because it's just too expensive an effort. If your cadence is below that, then you're overstriding and you're opening yourself up to a potpourri of injuries. So you're pawing the ground. If you paw the ground hard off your heel or even your toe, you're going to put a lot of load down the posterior chain. You're going to start loading your hamstrings up. And so it's really difficult. I, and I, I, I'm always kind of dodging questions when they, they, they're asking me for a short answer to a difficult question. And I apologize for those that think I'm dodging you, but I'm thinking deeper than that. You need to slow down and figure out ground contact. Figure out how to make contact with the ground and slowly start to move your body forward. If you start to find that the way you're making contact with the ground has changed, if you start to find that you're reverting back to the way you used to run, you're already starting to make mistakes. And a, and a pretty good testament of that is you'll start noticing your stride frequency starts to slow down. <sighs> so, I don't know if I went too far on a tangent with that, but um, the other consideration was when considering heart rate variability as a factor when training. You know, they want to look at heart rate relative to the stride frequency. Certainly, when you first take on a change in your stride frequency, it's going to cause your heart rate to go up. Don't freak out because you'll adapt. You'll get to a place where it starts to get easier to support that stride frequency. Rick, can I yeah, add one yeah, thing yeah, that yeah, I think help, help a few people out there? Because I've I've had people that have that have worked with you and I, and and they've heard us talk about the 180 and they'll, it's like, I can say one thing that will help clear up some of the things out there, because a lot of people don't separate this talk from, let's say they're going out and they're running an anaerobic effort, say a 400 meter or an 800 meter run. At that point, I, it's like, 
Well, obviously, yeah, you're going to you're, you're going to be hitting a much faster cadence. I, you know, I, I hit road, I timed road, I I, I marked Rose's cadence in one of her two hundred eight uh, eight hundred meters, and she was obviously much much higher than that. But so yeah, when you're in that eight hundred meters and under that real heavy anaerobic uh, effort, that's a different story. But ninety nine percent of the time, that's not what we're talking about when we are. 100% of the time, when you're talking about your 180, you're not talking about that 400 meters right. of plow. Well, yeah, the, assum- the assumption being that when she's done with 800, 800 she's lit up. Her body is on fire. She's not going right. to decide, well, instead of doing an 800, I'm going to go two miles. That ain't going to work. So clearly, um, yeah. you look at guys like Hussein yeah. Bolt, his his goal is to run 200. He's not going to concern himself with with running out of energy or lactate buildup. He's going to just go to he blows. No, no, that's, that was, I was just letting you finish. That's, okay. that's correct. All right. So, and the other thing, the, the consideration of up or downhill. Now, keep in mind that if you slow your cadence down on a downhill, what you're telling me is you're braking really, really hard. And Miguel knows more than anybody that I'm familiar with. Because we, we focus on these very specific drills in our clinics. Going downhill, if you're at 180 or greater, you're in a better place. If you have to crank your legs out to 200 strides per minute going down a steep hill, that's better than putting on the brakes. Because the other thing is now you've got gravity working with you. It's helping you down this, the hill. Where you're going uphill, what you're probably going to need to do is shorten your stride frequent or stride length up. And you may do better to crank your cadence up a bit, but you're, I've, I've been finding that right, right about 180 strides per minute works pretty well until the hill gets too steep, and then of course you're maybe not even capable of running up it. Agreed. Yeah, when when it when it gets to like that that 40 percent or more, that's basically when you want to just start power hiking. You're gonna march. Cover more. You're gonna march. Yeah, you just it's the death march up the mountain, and yeah, coming downhills. I mean, you don't really want to pump the brakes because it's just going to mess you up. It's going to hurt you. Right. So when you're coming downhill, it's just you you pick them up. You, you pick them up, pick up those knees a little bit more, you know, especially if you're feeling real worried about it. I mean, you can hit 180, and you can still move slowly down the mountain at 180, you know. I mean, it's just a matter of, of making sure to pick up your feet, trusting your body. And, and, and at the end of the day, guys, we're running an obstacle course race. Falling happens, tripping happens, you know, it's it's just kind of a part of it, and you have to accept that as an inherent risk. But you're better off, you know, accepting that and trusting yourself and trusting your body. And maybe, yeah, maybe you might fall, but then you get back up again versus pumping the brakes the entire time for a beast or ultra beast distance race, and then you wonder why you have IT band syndrome or some other issues that people run into. Right. Let's take three more questions, one each. And then let's try to figure out what we're going to do about giving away prizes for people that have done a good job because we're definitely going long here. Sounds good. So you guys got a list in front of you. Find one you like. Roll with it. I'll do the same. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, this one this one's from Melissa. Melissa Dugan from the World's Toughest Motor Community did not post where she's from, but that's all good. Um so she asked, what do you feel is an appropriate time for tapering for OCR World Championships, World Stuff is Mutter, and I'm just going to throw in there Spartan World Championships because it's another one of the big races at the end of the year. How, you know, so this one, this one I feel is a real, a real good one that you guys can help with. Um, I mean, what is a good amount of time to taper for stuff like that? I, I generally tend to think that, like, 
you know, the longer the distance of the race, the longer you want to have your taper. And, and in general, I feel like we can also just kind of talk about what, what entails a taper, you know, like, cause a lot of times people are like, all right, so that just means I don't train like three days before I race. Right. And it's, and it's a little bit more complex than that. Um, I know that in general, like if you're running something close to like a marathon or 50 K distance, you want to give yourself uh, anywhere between two to three weeks of a taper time. And essentially your training time doesn't decrease. The training time will remain the same, but what changes is the intensity of training. Um, this can be applied depending on the distance, you know? So obviously I think OCR world championships, they have like an eight K and a three K distance. So your taper time for something like that would be shorter than that, probably about 10 days or less. And then for something like a world's toughest, I feel like you would, you would probably be, you know, anywhere between three weeks, three to four weeks, as far as your taper. And again, that the intensity is the main thing that, that really takes a drop, but I digress. I think you guys can, can probably add in some excellent, advice on this topic since uh you guys are uh, coach supremes well, yeah i'll add, add one thing uh, one thing to something you said miguel that was that you nailed was the fact that there's such a drastic difference in something like an ocr world championships 3k if that's one of your a races versus world's toughest mudder being your your a race it's like it's like taking the 1500 meter runner versus the marathon runner um or the ultra marathon runner i should say and it's just going to be, you know, some of those meso microcycles leading up to that, that, that final taper, you know, there's, there's just going to be a different level of sharpening certain things leading up to Australia World Championships 3K that aren't going to be a factor in, in World's Toughest Mudder. And, um, so yeah, that's a, that's just such a, such a huge, awesome question. Um, I kind of look at what we're doing leading up to that taper, um, but, but yeah, there's, you, you know, you're just, what you're going to be doing the last month <laughs> on those two ends of the spectrum with the little short three K that's just crazy fast, blow yourself up, body carnage at the finish of the race versus this ever so, you know, that slow body, body carnage that happens at, at world's toughest mutter. Um, and I, that's one that I would love to spend some more time on at a, at a later time. Who asked that one, M Miguel? That was Melissa Dugan. She's a fellow World's Toughest Mudder participant based out of Florida. Well, gotcha. let me just see if I can tag this a little bit. When you talk, talk to me about a taper, um, you have to kind of look at the volume. You know, you have to look at the volume, and, of course, you have to look at the intensity. And when you talk to me about a race that's going to go 24 hours, well, clearly intensity is not – you know, it's not the primary concern because you're really looking at developing your endurance and your stamina. And that's kind of a polar opposite of intensity. So I would like to see an athlete go into an event like that where there's challenge-specific work. And when you get to a place where you've been doing some 8-hour efforts, maybe 10, 12-hour efforts in preparation for a 24-hour event, and then I'm also assuming that you're serious about trying to win this thing, then what you'll probably find is that you're going to need a lot of rest. So I'd like to see somebody get at least a good solid, uh, a good solid seven days of uh, decompression, where you're letting the body recover from all the 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 volume and the and the beat down you've been throwing at your body. Because there's a lot of structural stuff that goes on when you go long. 
you know, your fascia starts complaining, your knees are aching, your, your hips are aching, and your body's just basically destroyed. And so you need to take yourself to a peak or a pinnacle of your, of your training, and then you need to bring yourself back down to be 100% recovered and super compensated. It's a term I like to use a lot. Supercompensation is where your body's recovered and your fitness has improved dramatically over where it once was. And so I'd say about a week of really solid um, recovery would be good, uh, really focusing on getting the calories in, maybe even backing off some of the calories because when your miles are really, really huge, you're probably going to be eating a lot more and then you have to adjust your eating as you're not doing the work anymore. So there's a lot, there's a lot of moving parts in that whole process. And the same thing, like Yancey suggested, doing something where, like a 3K all-out effort, the amount of time you need to recover from that type of training is completely different because you're looking at really, really high intensity versus a lot of volume. So it's a completely different animal. Awesome. What would you find, Yancey? Uh, I'm going to give my throw my wife a bone here. I've got one from Alicia. Um Best nutrition you guys recommend daily as an athlete, um, and I'm going to kind of paint a uh, kind of how an athlete's day can look. Um, I think we've, maybe it's a Western culture thing, maybe it's a worldwide thing. We kind of created this, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner routine, and what we try, all the athletes that my wife and I work with, we spend a lot of time trying to get them to I hate to use the word graze, but that, that gets loosely thrown out there sometimes. But getting away from these three big meals, and we look at breakfast, snack, lunch, snack, dinner, and then not being afraid as a professional athlete or a athlete that works out five, six, seven days a week of getting that snack in. Right, I tell most of my athletes, what do you do right before you brush your teeth? We get a snack in. Um, when you when you drop the hammer on your body, you know that day um, taking in some uh, you know a decent amount of protein late in the evening, right before you go to bed, is going to be a good thing. In most cases, these people are winning the calories in versus calories out battle. It's not going to be a case of oh I'm scared I'm going to put on some weight because I have a little snack in the evening. Um, that's that's how we fuel our athletes from a professional perspective. And, you know, she deals, she deals with – she just sat in our living room and watched many Olympic athletes that she worked with over the years win gold medals in, in Rio and, and athletes that I've worked with. And so what happens is when you kind of step away from the big breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you get off the roller coaster ride of your, your energy stores spiking and depleting, and you kind of that, – that roller coaster ride kind of levels out. You just see little bumps in the road. And you're always fueling before your workout. You're always fueling. You're not going more than 45 minutes after your workout to replenish those glycogen stores. We're not. We don't have a huge focus on protein, minus the carbohydrates. The proteins don't work like they're going to if you don't get the carbohydrates in as well. So you noted earlier, stay away from the fads. Follow good, sound nutrition, and 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 maybe smaller breakfast, lunch, and dinners, and eating more often throughout throughout the day. So hope that helps you a little bit, Alicia. I would recommend, and this is somebody that you're familiar with and good friends with, Dr. John Ivey partnered in a book with Dr. Robert Portman that was termed Hardwired for Fitness. Did you read that? 
Hardwired for Fitness and Nutrient Timing. Absolutely. There you go. All right, so these are really good books to, to get a better sense of the needs of your body and when they need them. And let me just kind of give you a broad stroke and just kind of tag on to what Yancey had said. The idea of taking protein late in the day is a really good idea because your body is less receptive to carbohydrate in the evening because yep. we are, according to the circadian cycles, we're basically hunter-gatherers by nature. And our body typically prefers carbohydrate early in the day. And because as a species, that's how we function. We used to go out in the morning, seek our food, and then hide out in the evening to get away from our predators. And we kind of still function like that. So when, when, the, when the light changes, when it starts to get darker, your body starts to shift away and is less receptive to using those carbohydrates. I generally tell my clients to consume about 20% protein, 20% fat, 60% carbohydrate. And incidentally, Alicia, you also asked about our clinic. And so I'm gonna, we're going to conclude this business with another question you asked. But I'm going to get to it in a second. We start our clinic by doing a resting metabolic assessment on our athletes. It's a clinical evaluation of how many calories your body requires at rest, meaning you're lying on a table, how many calories would my body require just to exist? No influence, no work, nothing, just lay there. And when we find out how many calories, bottom line, you need just to support your frame, then we start taking into account your, your activity levels and when your activity levels occur. And we could see how your fat is being utilized whether you're efficient at using fat, whether you're very uh, incapable of using fat and preferentially using carbohydrate. And based on the way we feed you, you're going to start noticing that your body will improve its utilization of, of fat and retard its carbohydrate uh, scavenging. And so if, you, if we figured out how many calories your body needs based on your workloads and based on your resting metabolism, then we could start chopping it up, 60% carbs, 20% fat, 20% protein. And I would recommend that those percentages go across the board in your meals. And I'm still a fan, as he suggested, of essentially a grazing mentality. Probably, you know, as many as four or five eating frequencies, I won't call them meals, in a day. But you've got to wake up in the morning, you've got to pump back the carbs that you depleted while you were sleeping. You go back and do your work. You recover by feeding. You keep that stream of uh, fuel coming in. You keep that stream of light protein coming into your body. And then towards evening, you start backing off the carbs and you start looking at the protein again. Is that pretty much on page? Absolutely. All right. So the other thing that you asked, and um, this is really kind of twofold. You said, uh, what's the best way to deal with common IT band syndrome that gets most of us? Well, that's why I travel around the country is helping people to eliminate these injuries that they're facing. And generally, these IT band issues are a result of bad running mechanics. And you finish the question by saying, I'd like to hear more about the running camp. Well, I just kind of told you what day one looks like. It's clinical assessments of the way your body responds to work and how your body responds when you don't work. After we have that information, the very next day, we're going to look at the way you move. And then we're going to start exposing you to some terrain. 
And so it's a two-day effort. I know you live on the East Coast. I know you live close by. So I'm just going to go ahead and start this by offering you the free second day. I would recommend that if you're going to come out, you go ahead and step up. I just saved you 150 bucks. Get the first day. Get your testing done. We'd love to see you in Killington, Vermont. Very cool. Who else are we giving stuff to? I'd be um, to give up. I would love to give Mr. Jason Ware for his um, question, one of our beat elite uh, canisters. There you go. There you go, Jason. Looking. Yes, great question. There was also, what was up? I think, what about Chris? He, he hit us with the, with the question that brought in all three of us. Um, I'd love to, uh, love to, to throw him a canister of the Beat Elite. There you go. Miguel, go ahead, buddy. You pick the third one. Um, let's see. I think, I think, uh, <laughs> Melissa, Melissa Dugan, I really liked your question on tapering. I know that we've had similar questions, but it was cool because she included, uh, world stuff as OCR Worlds and Spartan. I, I kind of threw that in there because I know a lot of us are doing all those. But um, if she'd be down, I'd love to extend a, a month of Yancey camp to her and, and see if she'd be down to, to give it a try. And then otherwise, as far as a canister of, uh, of that Beat Elite, who, I think Mr. 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 Piscatello, Piscateo Piscatello from Windsor, who was go. asking about the shoe, the shoe question. We always have shoe questions, and, and I thought that was a good one. Rich, go ahead and hit your guests, buddy, your, your giveaways, and I'll, I'll come up with this third, uh, third Yancey camp. Okay. Uh, let's see. So I got a giveaway. I gave away um, the uh, the run clinic in Vermont. God, this is, my my feet are in the cement right now. Let's see. Um, let's. I I think this Alvin Wong. Let's give him. Let's give him one here locally. I think he's down south, but he can get to it. Um, so let's give him one. I'll, I'll make sure to reach out to him, let him know that he won. Okay. And, and then um, I got one more to give away, um, and that's in Dallas. So let's do this, um, Michael Forrester or Forrest, Michael Forrest. So just to be clear, you guys got day two. It's a Sunday. It's the Run Clinic. And, it, and I tried to pick it close to where you live. So Michael Forrest, you live in Fort Worth, Texas. I don't know how it could get closer to you than that. And the same thing with, uh, did I say Alicia? Yep. And then um, Mr. Wong is going to come out and see me here locally when I put my next clinic on. So we've got, uh, you got some, you got some uh, discount coupons to give away too, is that right? Yeah, I've got uh, the... Fabian Linder, I'm going to do the uh, the last uh, Yancey Camp and three months of Yancey Camp. He had a great question. Appreciate that question, Fabian. And I do have six $25 discount coupons to Belcor. Um, Belcor, that's uh, they they make the body buffers. And let's just because of time constraint, let's just take the top six I have on my list here. So we got Will Raymond, we got Dave Dumichel, we've got Mike Sharp, uh, Andrew Saunders, Jason Ware, and then um, let's skip Alvin Wong because we gave him something. Let's go to Jake, Jacob Torkelson. Awesome, folks! If you stomach this thing all the way through and you still enjoy it, go to iTunes 
and give us a review. Say something nice about us. It's really good for, for business. Yancey, brother, I'm looking forward to seeing you in Dallas. I will see you in Dallas, correct? I should be able to be. I may not be 100%, but I I don't have to be 100% to get a to get my uh, gate and re-groomed and checked up on, buddy. That's the good news. I don't have to be out there sprinting. So, no, uh, no. <laughs> I, I plan on... Uh, Plan on being there and let you let you put your eyes on my uh, on my mechanics again. Uh, I look forward to that. And before I forget, I want to give a big shout out to to be the elite for my, my awesome uh, title sponsor for for throwing out the canisters. But uh, and I apologize for I was bouncing around making noise through half the podcast and coming in and out. So I apologize for that, buddy. Well, you know the other thing that I want to uh, make clear is that I know you've been sending me this this uh, beat elite. I've been using it. I love the stuff. I love the beat elite. You know, of all the supplementation, and I don't take anything. To try to get me to take something, forget it. If it's not a Cuban cigar and a little bit of scotch at the end of the day, I'm not doing it. But I take that Beetleet every morning before I step out. And I find that it's really been good for me. So my kudos to the Beetleet folks, and thanks so much to them for offering it up, as well the the, uh, Bellacor. And uh, I, I didn't mention, and I think it's fair that I should mention, that Rec Bag is going to offer up one free bag to the people. We're going to draw somebody up that registers early. So if you're thinking about registering to come to the clinic, you might have a Rec Bag for free for having done so. Thanks a lot, Yancey. Let's get back to your day. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.